Morning. Still got a few le minutes left of morning. All right, I'm going to ask, I'm going to apologize. I do have a lozenge in here. This has been a sort of a rough week, week and a half. I'm recovering. Um, so just please bear with it. But I'm going to try something, even with my voice like this. <clears throat> Sing with me. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Father, we pray that the Spirit of the Lord is here, and not here for these few minutes that I get to share, but that your Spirit lives here. And that as we walk out these doors, no matter what we do, may the Spirit reside in our hearts and may it be the Spirit of power. And may people see that we have been with Jesus. In your powerful name we pray. Amen. I wrote this quite a few years ago. And it was inspired by a book that I had read. I want to introduce you to Jessica. Jessica has no energy. She's always tired. She thinks she is fat, so she won't eat anymore. Her friends notice the decline in energy, but believe her when she just says, I've got a cold. Her best friend is Mariah. Mariah seems so happy, but she cries every night. Her parents have put her in the middle of their divorce. She is made to feel that it was her fault that they're getting divorced. She stares at a bottle of Tylenol, wanting to swallow them all, hopefully just to take away some of that pain. Mariah's cousin is Erica. Her family makes her feel that she's not good enough. Your brother got all A's in school, but all you can get are C's? I hope you can make something out of your life. The only person in her house that she feels cares about her is her brother, but he's being shipped out for basic training next week. She started cutting to alleviate the pain. Erica's neighbor across the street is Chelsea. Chelsea is a people pleaser. She always tries to keep everyone happy. Her boyfriend, Robert, takes advantage of this and tries to get further with her sexually. Robert's best friend is Jeremy. Now, Jeremy is ignored by his family. He has started stealing iPods and video games from other guys' lockers at schools. Four miles away lives Jared, Jeremy's stepbrother. He lives at and goes to a local university. Now, Jared is in a constant cycle. He has gotten hooked onto internet pornography. It makes him feel guilty, so he prays that he can stop. But then he goes to the sites again. And after going and stopping and going and stopping, he gives up trying to stop. Jared's other stepbrother is Patrick. Patrick is 16 years old. Patrick was forced to move here from Ohio. He has left his old school and his old friends. He was already quiet, so this is horrible for him. He has no friends, and he wishes he could die. Morbid, huh? Morbid, but would you agree realistic? 
Or do you think that this is out of the norm? Do you think that your people in here, in these sacred walls, there are hurting people here? There are hurting people everywhere. Actually, the title that I, that I wrote this sermon, I, the title of it is Everyone, Everybody Hurts. Do you, any of you guys remember the 90s song by R.E.M., Everybody Hurts? Basically, it was to address teen suicide and saying, hey, hold on. That's the, if, you, if you listen to the last line, is hold on because you're not alone. Everybody has pain. I am not looking for hands. I'm just asking questions. How many of you or somebody close to you has gone through a divorce? There is pain in divorce. How many of you or somebody you know has gone through sexual, verbal, emotional abuse? How many of you have been, or somebody you know, has been mistreated by peers, by family, by coworkers? How many of you or somebody you know has been made to feel you are not good enough? There is pain in this world. The text that, the text that we read earlier, that Afif read, was Revelation 21.4, and I actually believe with all my heart that this is central to the gospel. This one verse. Because it says, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, sorrow, crying, and pain. He does not say, I hope you take me right here. He does not say, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and he will get, away, he will get rid of dancing. He will get rid of loud music. He will get rid of video games. God wants to get rid of four things. Death, sorrow, crying, pain. Everything that should happen in this church, which I do believe the local church, as some theologians have said, is the hope for our communities. But everything we do should be to alleviate death, sorrow, crying, pain. Because that we know that God wants to get rid of four things scripturally. Death, sorrow, crying, and pain. Sometimes we've made religion not about death, sorrow, crying, pain. Actually, what's sad to me is some of our congregations have added to the pain, to the sorrow. And that's sad. Let me tell you about, we'll call her Sarah, because I know that the Adventist world is this big. 
So somehow, somebody would know Sarah. That is not her real name. So Sarah, in her junior year, sat in the back of my class. It was her first year at the school I was teaching at. And she asked the first day, may I leave the classroom? May I go to the restroom? Sure. Okay, go. The second day, she asked, may I leave and go to the restroom? Okay. After the third and fourth day of this perpetual leaving the room, I said, hey, is everything okay? And uh, I think she was sort of testing if I was safe. So she said, okay, maybe I'll talk to you tomorrow. Well, the next day, she came up to me and she said, can we go to your office? Can I just talk with you for a few minutes? I said, sure. She said, I'm 17 now. And I just told my parents about this a couple weeks ago. When I was nine years old, I went to a camp. And these two 17-year-old boys had their way with me. I was never the same. So I tried to, I've tried everything. I've tried drugs, I've tried relationships, I've tried sex. The only thing that I could really control is the food that goes in and the food that goes out. So as a form of control and to alleviate the pain, she would purge. And all this time, I sort of thought that purging was more about the way you look, but it wasn't for her. She was experiencing real pain, and so she would, to, to say, I have control of what's going on in my life, she would purge. Let me tell you about Jody. Now, Jody is her real name, but she is not Seventh-day Adventist. So she is comfortable with me. I have actually asked her. She is comfortable with me giving you her first name. I actually want to read you Jody's story. Um, how I met Jody is when I started the new gym that I, well, it's not, I've been there for over six years. But six years ago, when I started working out at the gym I do work out at, I had met several people. I'm a fairly talkative person in the gym, um, whether people are like, whether they like it or not. I, I usually approach them and just talk to them. And there was a, a lady in her early 40s at that time, uh, really, I mean, she was hardcore, worked out, worked out, always smiling. And I just caught her on the wrong day. In 2011, I, I said, hey, uh, how you doing? And she's just bawling. And I'm like, oh, what did I say? Uh, did I say it wrong? And, and, and she starts bawling. And she said, this is the five-year anniversary. And I said, um, the five-year anniversary to what? And I'm, gonna I'm actually going to read the story that she had written. 
In July 2006, we moved from Texas to Boulder, Colorado. On November 22, 2006, our family was traveling from Boulder to Salt Lake City to spend the Thanksgiving holiday with some extended family. We were about three hours away from our destination when we grabbed some lunch. Hannah, age 11, and Nolan, age 6, were sitting in the third row of our Suburban. As I was trying to hand the kids their lunch, I struggled to reach them. Hannah said she wanted to move to the second row, buckets, uh, second row bucket seat. Nolan also wanted to move to the second row. I said, okay, but you better hurry up. They undid their seat belts and began to move. My husband was driving and turned around to say something funny to the kids. I remember we were all laughing, but when my husband turned back around to look at the road, he had slid off the highway. He tried to correct and get back on the highway, but we spun out of control, slid down the ravine, and rolled many times. My kids had not buckled their seatbelts yet. We landed upside down. I remember calling out their names, but no one answered. I could see my husband next to me. He seemed to be okay. I was able to crawl out the shattered windshield to get out. About a football field away, I could see Hannah laying in the middle of the, of the highway. All the cars had stopped, and time stood still. <clears throat> I ran to her, but I knew. I screamed for help. I knelt down and held her, and I told her I loved her so much, that Mommy and Daddy love her so much. Hold on. Hold on, Hannah. She took her last breath as I held her, and I kept whispering in her ear, <clears throat> I love you. I think someone pulled me away from Hannah. I looked around searching. Where was Nolan? There on the grass several yards away was my husband bent over my son with a group of strangers and some paramedics. They were trying to stabilize him and take him to the closest hospital. We were basically in the middle of nowhere, somewhere in Wyoming, near Rock Springs, I think. The hospital they took him to was unable to care for his injuries. They were too severe. They made arrangements for, to care flight him to Primary Children's Hospital in Salt Lake City. They did not have room for my husband and I in the hospital, so we had to rent a car and drive the remaining three hours to Salt Lake City. To this day, I don't know how I was able to do it. It's all a blur. She didn't even have time to mourn for her 11-year-old daughter because she was driving three hours for her six-year-old son. Her son, <coughs> her son had, has permanent brain damage. I've met him several times. That wasn't the end of her story. So her husband and, and she were having some challenges maritally because of this tragedy. So they figured, let's try having another kid. And they did. And she loves this kid. But because of challenges in the pregnancy, her daughter also has permanent challenges. She was bawling her eyes out telling me this, saying, I know I seem selfish right now, 
but I know that I will have to take care of my kids for the rest of my life and the rest of their lives. Her husband is out of the picture now. She's working, taking care of the family. There are broken, broken people all around us. There are broken lives. You know, if you go to Mark chapter 5, we're not going to spend too much time in this, but it's about a woman. It's about a woman and, and a man and his daughter. And you guys know the story, so I'm not going to read the whole story to you, but I'm going to, to, to just go over this story. You know that Jesus was going over a lake, uh, comes to the shore, and a man named Jairus comes up to him, who's a synagogue leader. My daughter's dying. And in verse uh, 24, it says this, So Jesus went with them. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. Actually, if you read the Luke account, it says that they almost crushed him. There were so many people. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Now, let's get real. Most of you probably know what her bleeding is. Now, ladies... I'm going to ask you a question. I don't necessarily want the answer back. But what would 12 years of menstruation that never ends be like? Say you, are, you start when you're 12 years old. So say this young lady, we, we don't quite know, but say she starts from when she starts menstruating, and it never stops and she's now 24. What is life like? Is it bad? Well, it's worse for her. Because in those days, when you were menstruating, you were not supposed to have contact with people. Now, they did have these places in, in several areas where you could potentially have contact with other menstruating women, but you were considered unclean. And then you had to go through this ritual cleansing, which she must have never gone through. So how many friends really do you think she had? Realistically, she wasn't supposed to come in contact with people. This lady was broken. And Jesus, when she touches, in, in this account, it says she touched the, the edge of the garment. In the Luke, it says she touched him. Because he says, in this one, who touched my clothes? Who touched my clothes? And in the Luke account, everybody denies it. They're like, oh, not me, not me. And Peter's like, uh, everybody touched you. And 
then she, when he wouldn't give it up, I, it was me. Now, how do you explain that? If you're her and you know that you've been unclean for the last 12 years, which is considered a curse from God, and now you're touching this rabbi, making him unclean. I mean, if you're Jesus, would you want to bring that to attention? Do you notice the, if you ever read this story, I want you to read this story later. There are some, some ironies in the story. When he heals Jairus' daughter, he says, don't tell anybody. But in this story, he actually, she could have not told anybody and got away. But he's like, nope, somebody touched me and I want to know who it is. I want everybody here to know who it is. He wanted everybody to know that his purpose is to heal broken people. That is the purpose of Jesus. If you get something out of it that I haven't, it is not about theology. Jesus was not about pushing a theology. It was about healing broken people. Do you know what James 1.27 says? It says this, pure and undefiled religion is to help the orphans and the widows. And why does he say that? Because they are broken people. That is pure religion. So my question is, why have we made religion about committees and systems and seminars? And please don't get me wrong. I think that there, are, there is a purpose for all of those. But the structure is not what's most important. It's people. And there are a lot of hurting people out there. You know, my personal struggle, when I first, before I went into pastoral ministry, I just loved being around people and listening to their stories, going to nursing homes, listening to their stories. And I would spend hours. When I first got into ministry before I got married, I can't remember if I told you guys this, uh, I was bivocational in ministry. So I would leave my house at 6.30 in the morning and I'd get back about 10 o'clock at night. Well, our first week of marriage did not turn out real well because I was still doing that and my wife knew nobody in that town and did not have a job, so she was cleaning the house for about 12 hours a day. It was a really clean house. I just loved doing that. But the more... As my family has grown, I've realized that I have responsibilities at home. And that's hard on me in my ministry. But as I thought about it, and as I have thought about that, is that is God designed. Because God did not call me to this ministry to broken people. He has called us to the ministry of broken people. Every one of you can reach a broken person. Somebody who's cutting, somebody who's going through a divorce, somebody who's struggling with chemicals, somebody who's addicted to pornography, 
somebody who's been abused, you can reach that person. I want to end with a quote, just in case you need some authority. End with a quote, and actually, I think our Sabbath school lesson is based off of this quote. But I love this quote. It's one of my favorite. And, and it's by a, a lady named Ellen White, if you've ever heard of her. And it's in the Ministry of Healing, page 143. And it says, the world needs today what it needed 1,900 years ago, a revelation of Christ. A great reform, a great, a great work of reform is demanded. And it is only through the grace of Christ that the work of restoration, physical, mental, and spiritual, will be accomplished. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. So Christ's method, secondarily? No. What does it say? Alone. That means alone. One. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. Not, he didn't desire that the church grow. I mean, again, he does want our community to grow, but it wasn't to, to make the Jewish nation bigger or in our context, to make our church more populous. He met with people desiring their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them follow me. There is a need of coming close to the people by personal effort. By the way, this is the formula she's giving. Christ's method alone, right? If less time were given to sermonizing, that's my job. <laughs> if less time were given to sermonizing or seminarizing, and more time were spent in personal ministry, greater results would be seen. The poor are to be comforted. No, no, the poor are to be relieved. The sick are cared for. The, sour, the sorrowing and bereaved comforted. The ignorant instructed. The, igno the inexperienced counseled. We are to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Accompanied by the power of persuasion, the power of prayer, and the power of the love of God, this work will not, cannot be without fruit. If you want to see this church grow, even though I don't think that should be our primary purpose, is hang out with broken people. If you weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, no matter what their background is, no matter what language they use, no matter what they watch on TV, this work will not, cannot be without fruit. Let's pray. Father, I'm broken. We are broken. Heal us and use us to be a balm for those out there who need us and in here who need us. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.